1: thrusting space science into the audio dimension this is naked astronomy
2: In this special Naked Astronomy podcast, I'm reporting from the National Astronomy Meeting in Glandidno. We'll be hearing how twisted sunspots cause solar flares, how 17th century poetry can put a date on a supernova, and why some pulsars are just part-timers. Plus, Andrew Ponson and solar physicist Lucy Green will take on your science questions. I'm Ben Valsler from the Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy.
1: Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th Anniversary Team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Sunspots are dark,
2: cool patches on the surface of the sun... But despite being 2,000 Kelvin cooler than the rest of the surface, they can actually lead to the huge releases of solar energy known as solar flares. I spoke to Daniel Brown from the University of Central
3: Lancashire. In the solar atmosphere, the magnetic field in the sun's atmosphere is the most dominant thing and it can get twisted up. When it gets twisted up, it's storing energy, much in the same way that if you twist an elastic band up, it stores energy. But much like a mad elastic band, if you twist it too hard it will snap and ping across the room. And this is similar for solar flares. If the magnetic field becomes too twisted or stretched, then it will break and it will erupt in a a brightening seen in the sun's atmosphere. And this particular solar
2: flare that you were looking at was was quite a big one, quite an important one.
3: Yes. It happened on the fifteenth of February this year. And it's the largest solar flare that's been recorded since December 2006. And it's the first X-class flare of the new solar cycle. So yes, it's the first of the big ones as we get into a more active period of solar activity.
2: And hopefully we'll expect to see quite a few more and be able to look at them more closely as the sun becomes more active. But what have you actually looked at in terms of what caused this flare? Uh, what I've been looking
3: at is what's happening in the surface. The, the motions of things in the surface, the magnetic footpoints on the surface, is the act of twisting up the magnetic field. And if you look at the sunspots underneath, there are five sunspots underneath, and they all rotate. The uh, largest one rotates by about 130 degrees over the course of three or four days. So as they're rotating, they're twisting the magnetic field, storing this energy in, in the magnetic field, until it all becomes too much and erupts is this flare.
2: Sunspots are the dark patches that we can actually see quite easily. We don't need to look very closely, but what causes them? What's the relationship between a sunspot and the magnetic field? Uh, the sunspot is where intense magnetic field that's
3: generated inside the sun comes through the surface and into the atmosphere. Uh, it's not the only place where this happens, but this is where the most strongest magnetic field from where it's generated
2: inside the sun comes in, pokes into the atmosphere. And in this case there were five sunspots coming together. Do we think this is something that happens quite often or was this event in itself quite unique? Uh, It's quite unique for the
3: recent years when we've had a quiet period of activity but as we go into solar maximum uh, over the next few years it should be a a much more common event and having these big complicated sunspot regions uh, should be more and more common. How did you actually observe this? I've been using uh, the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is a NASA mission that was launched last year. We have an enrolling archive at the University of Central Lancashire, so we get all the data from the mission, where it comes over to to us and we feed it out to the rest of the community. Uh, But because it comes through our computers, uh, we get to look at all this data in all its glory. (laughs) So it's a good opportunity to look at these particularly long, large data sets, because we have all the data handy.
2: So can we predict when the solar flares will occur? If we can see a sunspot and we can see it's rotating, we know it must be building up energy in the magnetic field. Can we say that one's going to give and we'll get a sunspot of the following intensity in 10 days? Certainly that would be the hope. We're not there yet,
3: uh, though people do try to predict solar flares. But certainly if you do see rotating sunspots, then you know that you are putting this energy into the atmosphere and you are likely to see some consequence
2: as solar flares are, are partly responsible for space weather is this likely to lead to a space weather forecast i guess
3: it's one of many things that will uh, the thing we don't really know is how common rotating sunspots are as i say in this particular case we had five that were rotating but in other cases there perhaps aren't any that are rotating so that that's the very much the next step how common are rotating sunspots
2: and how often do they lead to these big flares That was Daniel Brown from the University of Central Lancashire, and we'll have more on the incredible physics of the Sun later on. But now, the CANDLES programme is a major survey of some of the most distant galaxies at a redshift of greater than seven, and it hopes to answer some outstanding questions about the early universe. Andrew Ponson met Ross McClure from the Institute for Astronomy at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh.
4: Well, this is a survey that was allocated time uh, last year, and it's the... It's the largest ever survey to be allocated time on the Hubble Space Telescope over its entire time that it's been in orbit. The amount of time you get is allocated and how many orbits of the of the telescope you get. And this survey has been allocated 902 of these orbits, so that, that makes it easily the, the largest survey that's ever been allocated. It, all of it, or the fundamental data that this survey will take, is imaging with this new new infrared camera that's been installed on the Hubble Space Telescope. As far as observing in the Neo infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum, then it's at least a factor of 10 more sensitive than any other cameras that have ever been on HST before. And because of that, that obviously means that we can, we can observe objects which are about a factor of 10 times fainter than, than we previously could do. And because uh, in astronomy, objects which are further and further in the furthest reaches of the universe are fainter and fainter because of further away of us, the capabilities of this new camera means that we'll be potentially able to identify objects at, at greater and greater distances from us at earlier and early epochs in the universe's history.
5: So uh, you're, you're able to do two things, both find things presumably that are intrinsically fainter and also, as you say, things that are uh, further away but the same brightness. So what, what do those two things, being able to do those two things, really tell us that's new uh, that we didn't know before about the universe? One of the key uh, science goals that
4: we're trying to address with this survey is basically whether or not we can identify the galaxies. Uh, in the early epochs of the universe, that were responsible for reionizing the universe. So in the very early part of the universe's history, the, the universe went through what people describe as a phase change, basically. And in the early part of the universe's history, it was entirely filled with neutral gas. But in the universe that we observe around us locally, then all of this gas is entirely ionised. So this uh, the universe obviously changed at some point from being filled with neutral gas to being filled with ionised gas. And that change was caused by the energy that uh, the first galaxies and stars were actually able to produce. So if we want to learn how this change from neutral to ionised happened, then we have to go back to the earliest history of the universe and actually determine the nature of the galaxies that formed there. This new survey is actually going to help us to identify these objects. So once we've identified them, then uh, we have to learn as much as we can about their physical properties we have model predictions for what these properties should be but these are observationally untested at the moment because we haven't had the data to actually do that so some of the data from this new survey is going to allow us to A. identify these galaxies and and basically count them and sort of say are there enough of these galaxies out there to to potentially uh, make this change in the universe from neutral to to ionised and if there are enough of them uh, are they compatible with what we would predict theoretically for what's necessary to do this job.
5: So it sounds like there are lots of stages in uh, understanding and processing this data. What sort of timescales can we expect to see uh, results coming out from, from this work?
4: A variety of timescales, to be honest. Um, the survey in total has been allocated these 900 orbits of HST time. You can't take all of them in one massive chunk at the start of the survey, so they have to be spread out over time. So all of these orbits will actually, all of this data will actually arrive over a, over a three-year period in total. So the final, final results, if you like, from the survey won't, won't appear uh, in the scientific literature, for at least a th- you know at least three years from now, and realistically, by the time people have extracted all the information they possibly can from the data, it'll be it'll be many years after that. However, one of the one of the advantages of the survey is because there's so much data that has to be taken over a three-year period, data is taken in lots of different patches of the sky, and. The schedule means that one of these areas of sky has has been actually completed ahead of ahead of the others, and so that so people are furiously working to analyse that data set at the moment. And uh, I would imagine that uh, over the next three to four months, the first results will appear based on this data set in the literature, and people will make the first attempts to address the scientific questions I was talking about earlier.
2: Ross McClure speaking with Andrew Ponson. The twenty ninth of may sixteen thirty is a significant date in British history. The future King Charles II was born. Later propaganda would claim that his birth was marked by a noonday star, a bright object clearly visible during full daylight. Now, Martin Lunn, MBE, and historian Dr Lila Rakosi think that they've identified the source, a supernova thought not to have occurred until over 40 years later.
0: As a historian, I'm claiming that something genuinely astronomical was seen in 1630. I leave it to Martin the astronomer. Well, I'll let you speak for yourself.
1: Well, I'm claiming <laughs> that the object that these people in 1630 saw was in fact the light coming in from the supernova that astronomers today refer to as Cassiopeia.
2: So let's take this back a step. So 1630, why should that be of interest
1: to us today? The supernova is known to have exploded and the light reached the Earth in the 17th century. Current wisdom says 1670-ish. If our investigations are correct and we place the light reaching the earth at 1630 Mm -hmm. then the astrophysicists who study cassiopeia they're going to have to do some recalculations because what it means is the light is reaching the earth 40 or 50 years ahead of current wisdom and that must have massive implications for some of their uh, investigations surely the evidence that they've used so far to put the current
2: date on it must be pretty solid
1: Supernova Cassiopeia is about 11,000 light years away. The light echoes that were picked up in 2005 reflect off a gas cloud, which is about 160 light years from the supernova remnant. It's the word about which is really quite important because, in this world of this scientific world of micro analysing everything, to say it's about. 11,000 light years away and the gas cloud is about 160 light years from the explosion implies that they don't exactly know how far away it is so if we turn around and say that we believe the light reached the earth in 1630 rather than 1670 there has to be room for doubt
2: so what first drew your
1: attention to this
2: particular event and to this particular date surely you weren't just going through checking all of the dates of all of the supernovas we have recorded
1: absolutely not. I had what would be referred to as a Eureka moment. I was looking at a book on comets and folklore, and I came across this picture which depicted the sun in the sky and a bright star beside it. I looked at the date, and the date of the drawing refer to 1630, although the image itself was was produced in 1660. And in my very simplistic way, I simply put two and two together. Bright star, 17th century, supernova, must be Cassiopeia. I then had the good fortune to be talking to uh, my very good friend Dr. Ricosi, a post medievalist expert, and she very quickly sort of pulled me down to size and said, you cannot base an argument on a picture.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This must have been Quite an unusual uh, topic for you to be discussing it, if your main work is more historical.
0: It was actually quite exciting. Um, I have a, a layman's interest in, in astronomy. It's been really exciting being able to kind of learn more about the astronomical side of things, and, and Martin's been able to kind of pull me down as well in, in times when I've gone, oh, well, maybe it's... No, astronomically, that won't work. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's been a good partnership.
2: We probably shouldn't trust A picture drawn up 40 years after an (laughs) alleged event. So where do we go from there? How do we start to actually try and confirm it?
0: Well, for me, it started with a a long, hard um, look through the archives in Britain. I really wanted a 1630 source, and eventually we found it. It's Pretenni Nautilus, and I apologise for those who know Latin, because I don't, so I probably just butchered it. But it's a book of 137 poems, written by Oxford academics. So we're talking about the cream of the British intelligentsia of the time. Lawyers, physicians, Hebrew, Arabic specialists, and even astronomers. Um, John Bainbridge, he's one of our authors. He was the first civilian uh, professor of astronomy at Oxford University. Um, So I'm hoping that any skepticism on the part of the astrophysics community about this being a book of poems will be offset by the fact that For some of the poems, they're they're poems written by astronomers.
2: And I I guess where we don't have astronomical data, we have to rely on whatever other contemporary reports we do have.
0: That brings up a good point, which is the 17th century is a period where science is in transition. So uh, you've got a period where, yes, you do have what we would consider modern astronomical observations being made, but they're peppered with a lot of pseudosciences. Um, I mean, alchemy is still a big player in the 17th century, clear up to, to Newton's period. So I, I do think you have to take the wheat with the chaff. You know, you, you've got to look for the data where you can find it.
2: <laughs> Poetry is all well and good as a, a literary resource or as a historical resource, but do they make any other comments about astronomical events that we know that we can actually trust?
0: They do actually they make at least two. We have two references in particular. The first one that they reference is an eclipse that occurred I think it was the following day or the following or two days following uh, the birth of Charles the second and we know from astronomical sources of course that this eclipse did in fact happen. Another reference that they make they refer to it as king james 's star and this is basically a comet that was identified in i believe it was 1618 and the poems reference um, is this a visit by king james's star again so they didn't they didn't quite realize the astronomical significance but we have at least two references where they're talking about genuine events so my argument as a historian is if they're referencing these two real astronomical events why not the noonday star being a real one how
2: do you expect the astronomical community are going to respond to this? Do you think that they will think that this isn't hard enough data and so we probably shouldn't
1: shift that date? I suspect there will be some prejudice involved. I suspect that because I'm working with Lila historian, and we're using lots of historical facts, I'm suspecting there will be some scepticism. I think science has to be open. It has to be receptive to ideas maybe from areas that are outside its normal comfort zone but just because they are outside that comfort zone doesn't mean say they can be just dismissed. So what is the next stage for you what do you hope to do to try and find out a
2: bit more?
0: What I would like to see is not just research um, continuing research in Britain in the archives but I would like to see archives around the world researchers there having a second look at collections that date to the 1630s specifically looking for any kind of references to a star that appeared during the day. And it it might be a reference in a letter, a diary, um, a broadsheet. I have a feeling that they're there, we just haven't been looking in the right spots.
1: And also I think it highlights the importance, the value, of different disciplines working together. This cross-disciplinary approach is often used very glibly today. Here we've got a real example. We've approached the problem from different angles and we've come up with an answer which probably wouldn't have been achieved if it was just purely a historian or an astronomer doing that research. And hopefully in the future more people from different disciplines might be prepared to work together to try and solve some of the many riddles that that still um, exist today.
2: Martin Lunn, former curator of astronomy at the Yorkshire Museum, and historian Lila Racosi explaining their controversial idea presented at the National Astronomy Meeting this year. At last year's meeting, Dr Lucy Green from UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory explained to me how magnetic fields form ropes on the surface of the sun. You can just search Lucy, that's L-U-C-I-E, on the com to find that interview. Now, one year on, the sun has been busy as have the solar physicists.
6: There's been a lot of activity over the last year, so activity in terms of the sun becoming more active and activity in terms of the solar research is having some really good stuff to look at. I guess probably the biggest thing that's been happening is our studies of the solar wind, and in particular using the Japanese Hinode spacecraft to study the solar wind. So there's been lots of interesting work looking at, in particular, where the solar wind comes from, so, for example, does it come from active regions, which are very strong concentrations of magnetic field, or does it come from coronal holes, which are more dispersed regions of, of magnetic field on the sun's surface? And actually, we've been looking at sources of a slow component of the solar wind and finding how it, it does seem to come from edges of active regions. And in particular, on the Hinode spacecraft, we have a spectrometer. And the spectrometer allows us to study how gases are flowing in the sun's atmosphere. So there's been some very nice work looking at the origins of the solar wind using this instrument.
2: So why is it important for us to understand the solar wind? Of all of the aspects of the Sun that we can study, why is that a particular interest for you?
6: Well, we're interested in the solar wind because the Earth and all the other planets in the solar system are are bathed in this wind coming from the Sun. And when I say wind, I mean, it is stuff. It is particles like hydrogen, helium that make up the Sun's atmosphere. And this blows out into the solar system. But also the wind contains magnetic fields. And the particles, along with the magnetic field, really affect the objects in the solar system. So, for example, it can enhance the displays of the northern lights at the Earth. So we want to study the solar wind because it, it, it makes up the stuff in the solar system in which the planets exist and evolve. And it helps us understand the evolution, really, of, of the objects in the solar system.
2: So what have you got coming up next? We've had a busy year, and what's the next year going to be like?
6: I think the focus for the coming year will be um, results coming from NASA's latest mission, which is called the Solar Dynamics Observatory. It was launched last year, and the aim of this, this mission is to really have high resolution, so I mean able to look in detail at the sun's atmosphere at very small features, and with a very high time cadence. So we take lots and lots of images at every second of the sun. So the Solar Dynamics Observatory is able to look at the sun in a lot of detail and importantly it's going to help us understand how the sun influences things like climate change on the earth so the sun is the source of a huge amount of energy which through things like the solar wind really affects us here on the earth but we don't really understand the flow of energy from the from the solar atmosphere through space into the earth's atmosphere and down to the earth's surface so solar dynamics observatory will help us really understand the physics behind that energy flow
2: as well as the solar dynamics observatory giving us high resolution images we've also got stereo now in a position that we can actually see the entire surface of the sun constantly is that likely to render some very good results as well
6: I think it definitely will. Yeah, I love the fact that these two spacecraft um, at a cost of, what, half a billion pounds have essentially proved that the sun is a sphere. (laughs) But but really, I mean, that's a bit flippant. It it is more than that. So stereo is giving us the opportunity to see the full sun for the first time in human history. I mean, I find it completely mind-boggling that that we can do this. So the stereo spacecraft are in orbit around the Sun and they are now at opposite sides of the Sun. So it gives us this full 360-degree view. So what it allows us to do is, is see the full picture of solar activity. And we can start to understand, well, just how active is the Sun? And things like, does activity on the far side of the Sun produce or influence activity on the side facing us, which then ultimately affects us here on the Earth? So the 360 degree view really is going to help us sort of fine-tune our models and fine-tune our understanding of solar activity.
2: So we've got various things looking at the surface of the sun and the energy that comes out but there's a long way between us and the sun. There's a lot of stuff in the way as well. How do we know what's happening in that intermittent period?
6: That's a very good question and The energy that leaves the sun comes through space, travels 150 million kilometres before it impacts us here on the Earth, and we're not really sure exactly how it changes during this journey. So what the plan now is to launch something called Solar Orbiter, and we're waiting for the European Space Agency to give a final go-ahead on this mission. That will take place, we're hoping, in October this year. We hope to get the go-ahead then. And should Solar Orbiter be launched, that will take place in about, I think it's 2017, Um, so when solar orbiter is launched it will go into an orbit which is very close to the sun so about three tenths of the sun earth distance and it will allow us to understand the kind of the missing link as it were so we'll observe the sun and we'll see the energy leaving but then solar orbiter will be in that energy flow sensing it so we'll, we'll get the missing link between the sun solar orbiter and then the energy impacting us here on the earth
2: UCL's Lucy Green. She'll be back later on in the show taking on your solar science questions. Speaking of questions, as he was there with me at the meeting, I took the opportunity to put some of your questions to Andrew Ponson. First, at Graham Short tweeted to ask why mass causes space-time
5: to bend. Well, the answer to that question is perhaps slightly disappointing uh, because the reason that it causes space-time to bend is just because we say so. And that, that might sound like a weird way to do physics, but um, the, the way that, that this theory was dreamt up by Einstein was he was looking at some equations which he had written down some time earlier, the equations of special relativity. What those equations which Einstein had written down tell us about is the way that space and time sort of fits together. But Einstein realised that with gravity... Uh, gravity as it had been previously described by Newton very successfully, somehow it it couldn't be made to connect up with his new equations, which described how space and time worked. So over a a long period, Einstein worked on this and eventually realised that if he just assumed that mass were to cause his new description of of space-time to bend then the uh, equations of of Newton's ideas of gravity would sort of fall out automatically. So, in a sense, he just decided that mass must make space-time bend, Um, so there isn't a deeper reason for it, but it just seems to describe the way the universe works.
2: And in all of the research and all of the theoretical physics since, I assume we haven't seen any reason to doubt that assumption?
5: We haven't really seen any reason, uh, especially observationally. Einstein's description of mass bending space and time has been incredibly successful in describing the way the universe works. Uh, There there have been moves to re-describe gravity in, in a theoretically different way, but generally they are not as successful, actually, as Einstein's simple description where mass just bends space and time. We've had another question here from Simon Tullock that should be right up your street. It's
2: about the cosmic microwave background. And he says that it shows a dipole distribution, which I'll get you to explain in a minute, but then asks if that distribution suggests that the CMB itself, and not us here on Earth or anything else, should be used as an absolute reference frame. So first, this dipole distribution, what does he mean?
5: Well, um, it's absolutely right. If you imagine that you are sitting still for a moment, you're you're just sitting still in a room, and on the edges of that room, there are lights pointing at you. That's a slightly uh, approximate view, but it's one way of thinking about what the cosmic microwave background is. Now, imagine that suddenly you start moving in that room, and you move very fast We know from theory and, in fact, from experiments that if you're moving very fast towards the light, then you will see... That light being slightly bluer, it's what we call a blue shift when you, when you move towards a light. Whereas if you're moving away from a light, then you'll see it slightly redder, what we call a red shift. So if you imagine you're back in this room, but now instead of sitting stationary in the middle of it, you're moving very fast towards one of the walls. All the lights ahead of you appear blue, and all the lights behind you appear red. And that's what we call a dipole distribution. The dye comes from the fact that there are are, are two different directions in this, and and out to the front you're seeing blue, and out to the back you're seeing red. Now, the question asked about this in relation to the microwave background, and it's absolutely right that we see one of these dipoles in the, the microwave background radiation. It's also right, though, that the whole point of... Einstein's description of space and time was supposed to be that it didn't matter fundamentally what speed you were travelling at so that what we call a frame of reference, one person's frame of reference is as good as as another person's frame of reference. So there should be no fundamental difference between somebody who's moving very fast and somebody who's sitting stationary because viewed from another point of view you could imagine the stationary person moving fast backwards... and the person who was originally moving forwards not moving at all. So how do you reconcile these two things? And and the answer is that actually the way the universe starts... does set up what we call a preferred frame. So although the underlying equations describe the way that space and time works... Uh, don't rely on a, on a special frame. The actual particular universe that we get does have, at every point, uh, a special frame, which you can almost think of as being defined by the speed at which you'd have to move in order not to see one of these dipoles in the microwave background. And, of course, we do see a, mi- a dipole in the microwave background, so we are moving relative to that kind of preferred frame that was set up by the start of the universe. So does this preferred
2: frame have any implications for us, for our understanding or for the actual situation around us on Earth?
5: Absolutely. It does have implications. And in fact, the, the, the way you can think about this is that we were part of the, the Big Bang. All the the matter that makes up us and the Earth and so on was part of the Big Bang. And so when everything started, it should have had the same idea, if you like, of what uh, being stationary means. So if you think about all the particles that made up the Earth, they were there at the Big Bang and they should have been in one of these stationary frames where the microwave background should have looked the same in every direction. And then you fast-forward... 14 billion years to the present day. So how is it that now all these bits of matter that originally were stationary relative to the microwave background are no longer stationary? And the answer is because things start to be pulled together by gravitational effects, we get what we call large-scale structure developing, which we've discussed before on on this podcast. And that large-scale structure is causing uh, things in the universe to be accelerating relative to that original rest frame that things started off in so we on earth have been accelerated away from uh, originally being at rest with respect to, to the microwave background but in fact it's a subject of active research as to whether the exact motion that we see for, for our own Earth is fully consistent with the, the physical picture that we have of how structure in the universe has been built.
2: And as always, if you have any questions for us, email astronomy at com or tweet at Naked Scientists. This is a special Naked Astronomy coming from the Royal Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting in Glandidno, where space science researchers can meet to discuss their work. It's also a great chance for early career scientists to share the details of their PhD research. I spoke with Neil Young from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics about his PhD
7: on part-time pulsars. A pulsar is basically a uh, highly evolved star. star starts in its latest... Uh form of stellar evolution. It's basically the remnant of a supernova collapse from a massive star of the order of ten times the mass of the Sun. It's one of the most compact forms of matter, about the size of Manchester, about ten kilometres in diameter, and they're rapidly rotating, timescales of seconds or even half a second, or a millisecond. They have incredible electric fields and magnetic fields, and through their rotation, they also produce a lot of um, energetic emission from their surface and form sort of like these beams of emission which form a kind of a lighthouse as they sweep across the Earth. Because they're so extreme, they provide a testbed for a lot of important theories such as general relativity and also of uh, solid-state physics and fundamental uh, emission physics of certain sources.
2: When they were first discovered, they caused quite a stir, didn't they? Because nobody expected to see this regular pulsing of activity when looking out in space.
7: Yeah, I mean, the original discovery was back in 1968. You know, there's theories about little green men, you know, because it's so periodic, you thought that it couldn't possibly be an astronomical source. But yet there we are, observing these isolated neutron stars in space, quite regularly producing this uh, emission. But one thing which is quite peculiar is the fact that you may see in you know, a sample of these pulsars that their emission is quite irregular. Instead of seeing this quite steady uh, emission, you might see breaks where the, the pulsar basically switches off. One minute it may be radio emitting, and the next, it may just completely switch off its emission, which is very interesting in terms of the magnetospheric physics of pulsars. One thing which is unfortunate, however, is we don't fully understand the full radio emission physics of pulsars, so it's hard to describe why this is happening, but in the attempt to discover why the pulsar switches off will recursively enable us, hopefully, to determine why they emit in the first place and why they're so regular. So there's obviously still lots of questions.
2: Are there many different types of pulsar? And could that be something to do with why some of them seem so regular and others switch off for a while?
7: You do have uh, quite a few different types of pulsars, yeah. You see the normal pulsars. They uh, have typical sort of rotational periods of a second but the main period is about half a second, or the mean period, sorry. Those of the, the millisecond population, you know, a thousandth of a second, the rotation period, these are recycled pulsars. So they originally started their life out, perhaps, as a normal pulsar, and then they have a, a companion, which feeds them with, you know, more mass and energy, which allows them to spin up. Now, these are older and have a lot weaker magnetic fields. But these are much more stable. We typically see, for the normal population, some of them are quite young and energetic, that they're more prevalent towards irregularity. You know? We have theories about the, the expected time of arrival of a pulsar. And you, know, you have your model and your actual observations, and when you compare the two, you're supposed to have a kind of a corollary, but sometimes you just don't see that. So what
2: proportion of pulsars that we know of are these nulling or, or part-time pulsars?
7: There's nothing really to say that all pulsars wouldn't exhibit a nulling sort of phase. I guess one of the most comprehensive studies was done by uh, Wang and a few others back in 2007. They basically studied, I think, 40 pulsars or so, bringing the total to about 72. And this is out the, the actual full population of about 1,850, I think, which is the current total, which is published. This is quite a small percentage. This is only because it's very hard to determine or observe a pulsar actually doing this. It's hard to actually see it you know, switch off and switch back on. So it really just depends on, you know, your telescope, your observing time, whether, you know, the funding council allow you just to put your telescope into space and say, hey, that's a pulsar, please do something interesting.
2: When they do switch off, when they're in a nulling period, how long does this last for? Are we talking
7: minutes, hours, years? There's no fundamental timescale of nulling. You can say typical timescales, because the majority of which we've seen have small nulling fractions. So the null is the time of which a pulsar is in, its, is in its null phase, and that's typically about 1% up to about 5%. But that can range all the way up to 95%. But again, going back to my previous point, it depends on you know, whether you can actually observe it and confirm it. So what are our, our hypotheses? Why do we think this happens? There are a couple of scenarios, basically. Above the, the polar cap, you know, northern and southern poles of a pulsar, you may have irregularities in the local regions which are supposed to be responsible for the radio emission which we observe. The radio emission beam of a pulsar is supposed to be comprised of subbeams sort of filamentary tube structures and if you were to have a change in the the distribution of currents within these sort of regions you may have a subbeam which isn't as filled as another subbeam. So depending on how your line of sight crosses it you could perhaps see the pulsar in a certain phase or or not. And another scenario is just completely global reconfiguration, so the pulsar could switch off entirely, or it could be in its own phase, a sort of bimodality.
2: So what's the next step? What do we need to do to work out which of these, if either, is correct?
7: We kind of believe that there's a continuum of uh, this nulling distribution or this nulling activity, so we have uh, of timescales of seconds all the way up to, you know, days, hundreds of days, and even years... And these are attributed to different types of pulsar. Now, the global picture, you know, you want to basically describe what's happening in the short-time scales and the long-time scales and bring those together.
2: So some pulsars are simply part-timers. That was Neil Young from the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. Now, what has our atmosphere got in common with Venus with its clouds of sulfuric acid, or Jupiter's mainly hydrogen skies? It's actually more than you might expect, and the features that we do share may help us to understand and even predict atmospheres on planets outside our solar system. Professor Peter Reed, head of the Atmospheric, Oceanic and Planetary Physics Department at Oxford University, explains more.
8: What we're trying to do is to make some sense of the great complexity of atmospheres that we, that we already know about just within the solar system itself. People of course spend lifetimes sort of studying the, the atmosphere of the Earth and of course that's an incredibly complex system. But in the last couple of decades we've got a huge amount of more information about uh, some of the other nearby planets within the solar system. Mars, Venus, Jupiter and so on. And basically the closer we look the more complexity we see and that's all very exciting to discover it but you, when, you, when you don't have to sort of take stock and stand back and scratch your head a little bit about where is this all going. In particular, uh, certainly a lot of us would like to think that by studying other planets, either within the solar system or even beyond, is there any sense in which that could be telling us something about the Earth that we might not be able to to discover by other means? One of the things I'm certainly interested in trying to do is to develop a, a kind of sort of grand unified theory, if you like, of, of trying to understand how planetary atmospheres work and... and what are the most important bits? The trouble with a complex system is that you can get kind of carried away with the complexity. Um, but if you then actually have to sort of summarise in a, in a few words, you know, what, what's going on, um, that can be quite hard sometimes unless you have a very clear idea about, you know, what are, what are the most important questions to ask and, and, and how to organise the information that you've acquired.
2: Is it fair to say that every atmosphere we know about at the moment appears to be unique
8: in some respects but 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 not in others i mean that's the kind of uh, sort of fascinating aspect about it so for example if you compare the the basic organization of of the the circulation of the earth's atmosphere with with that of mars in fact there are many similarities so you know in that sense certain aspects are, are, are really not unique you know they're, they're actually quite quite generic
2: so what are the The shared features that we're seeing, especially as we see more and more atmospheres, what are the things that we seem to have in common?
8: Gosh, where do we start? Uh, Well, you can think of of atmospheres, already we can can sort of see that they fall into two kind of basic categories. Starting with familiar territory, there are the sort of so-called terrestrial planets. These are Earth-like planets, by which we mean they're essentially large, rocky objects surrounded by an envelope of gas of some sort these planets by and large don't have any energy source of their own that's of any great significance so they get most of their most of the energy that basically drives the circulation from their nearby star in our case the sun that sort of sets a whole a whole set of parameters that essentially puts most of those planets in in, in common with each other and you can understand some of the differences that, uh, between the different circulations, once you understand sort of how the planet is oriented with respect to the sun and how fast it rotates and so on. The other class of planet is the so-called gas giant or gas or ice giant planet. These are usually much larger than the Earth in terms of their mass, and they almost certainly have a rocky core, but the bulk of the planet is made up of, of fluid material. It's essentially usually hydrogen and helium. And so, in, in a sense, they're almost like a, the planet itself is almost composed entirely of a kind of deep ocean. These objects usually have some significant energy source of their own. Both Jupiter and Saturn, for example, they have within their interior uh, thermal energy that's of comparable magnitude to the amount of energy they receive day by day from the sun. The way that manifests itself in terms of the, the atmospheric circulation is that it, it means that there's a significant amount of energy upwelling from below, So it gives the circulation a slightly different character. It's more convective, whereas on terrestrial planets, the circulation is driven largely by differences in heating in the horizontal direction. So for a planet that isn't tilted over too much, like like the Earth, most solar energy basically uh, is concentrated into the tropical regions of the planet. And then the poles, of course, the, the sun never rises very high above the sky, so the poles, by and large, are mostly cooling all the time and then the atmosphere basically has to respond by trying to transport heat from the hot part to the cold part and even out these these temperature differences and it's really the the kind of fun games as to how the atmosphere achieves that that heat transport that it, that actually gives rise to all the nice dynamical complexity that uh, that people like us like love to study
2: so are we now in a position where let's say somebody discovers a new exoplanet, and they tell you that it's got the following physical properties. Are we now in a position where we can start to make inferences about what that atmosphere might be like?
8: We're beginning to get to that sort of state. Um, certainly once you know something about the properties of the star, its, it's, it's luminosity and how the, the energy output is distributed in wavelength, and you need to know, you know how big the planet is and how far away from the star it is typically so that you can work out how much energy input is actually going into the, into the top of the atmosphere. Going much further than that, life obviously gets a little bit more complicated because the, I mean, ideally what one would want to know is how transparent the atmosphere is to that radiation, how much of it will actually reach the, the surface of the planet, assuming it has a surface, of course. To some extent, those sorts of um, pieces of information depend on at least some rudimentary knowledge of what the atmosphere might be made of. And if you don't have spectroscopic information from the astronomy, then it, that's, there's a bit of guesswork involved there. And one has to say, really, the extrasolar planet world at the moment is is very much at the, at the beginnings of this sort of process. The balance is probably more in favour of guesswork than it is in terms of real hard data at the moment. But we are moving forward, and I think one of the sorts of things that the kind of models that I'm dealing with can help with is that once we know a certain minimum number of these main parameters, which include things like the size of the planet and, its, and particularly how fast it's rotating, then the simple models that we're currently working on um, can give quite a lot of detail, I think. They can put a lot of flesh on the bone, if you like, in terms of the style of circulation, the kind of weather systems that uh, could exist on, on such a planet, even though we're probably you know decades, if not centuries, away from having the technology to be able to actually measure these things directly.
2: Oxford University's Peter Reid on the quest for a grand unified theory of planetary atmospheres. Now, the Low Frequency Array, or LOFAR, is a European programme that allows us to observe low radio frequencies with incredible sensitivity and spatial resolution. Andrew Ponson spoke to Dr Karen Masters from the University of Portsmouth.
9: Uh, LOFAR stands for Low Frequency Array. It's a radio telescope which works at the lowest frequencies accessible from the surface of the earth. Um, We actually have two bands in LOFAR and two different types of antennas which work at those two bands. Uh, We span the FM radio band so we have the low band antennas below the FM radio band and the high band antennas above the FM radio band. The unique thing about LOFAR at the moment and it, in, in many ways it's a pathfinder for sort of for the next generation of radio telescopes which are all going to be using LOFAR like technology um, but the hardware itself is very very simple. The antennas are, can be constructed by anybody you could put one in your garden actually and the power of LOFAR is that There are so many of them and that they're spread right across Europe. They're connected with high-speed internet. We use fibre-arctic connections to a supercomputer at Astron in the Netherlands. Astron is the the, the main organisation which runs overall LOFAR, the International LOFAR Telescope. In the UK, we have about 200 LOFAR antennas. We have uh, 96 low-band antennas and 96 high-band antennas, which are in a field in, in Chibolton in Hampshire. These are super simple antennas, and volunteers from the University of Portsmouth, where I work, help to build the antennas, along with volunteers from, from other universities on the south coast.
5: So you said that the data from all of these different antennas across Europe gets fed into a supercomputer. What does a supercomputer do, then, with that data?
9: It's a technique which is called radio interferometry, and basically what it does is a whole lot of multiplication. And uh, if you multiply the signals in the right way, you either add the phases of the radio waves coherently or in, uh, not coherently. So, you know, if, you, if you imagine a radio wave, um, it has peaks and troughs. If you line up the peaks from two different antennas just right, you can combine their signal to sort of synthesize a telescope the size of Europe. And um, the longest baseline we have right now, working right now, is between Chibolden and Tautenberg in Germany. And that's almost 1,000 kilometres.
5: So uh, what sort of science are we going to be able to do with LOFAR? And when can we start to expect to see some exciting science results coming out?
9: Well, uh, we actually had the first uh, peer-reviewed science result from LOFAR published just just last month. And that was looking at pulsars. Um, The fun thing about that observation was that it used LOFAR to look at five different places in the sky at the same time. LOFAR has no moving parts at all. So to point the telescope, what you do is you add digital delays between the signals that arrive at the different antennas. If you imagine if you look straight up, the the signal would reach each antenna at the same time. Whereas if you look at a source over on the horizon, it's going to reach the antennas at one side of the array earlier than than the other side. So we add these digital delays to point the telescope. And that means that by taking the same signal but adding in different digital delays, you can point at different places all all at once. So that's fun. But LOFAR has an extremely broad range of science uh, goals, anything, basically, that emits low frequencies. One of the main goals of LOFAR is to detect the epoch of reionization, which is the time when the first stars turned on in the universe. Before those first stars, the universe was mostly neutral hydrogen, and neutral hydrogen emits a radio, a characteristic radio frequency, which at those high redshifts is, is redshifted into the LOFAR band, we hope, anyway. When the first stars turn on, Um, suddenly all that neutral hydrogen gets ionised and that radio signal turns off. And we hope with LOFAR to detect that redshift, that time when the first stars turned on.
5: So looking beyond LOFAR, you said it was a a pathfinder for other experiments. So what kind of developments can we expect to see in the future?
9: With LOFAR, we're really sort of testing out these techniques of very long baseline interferometry, of, of putting radio telescopes separated by very large distances and using... High speed uh, computing, supercomputers, and high speed internet to connect them. In the UK, LOFAR is, is a pathfinder for the Square Kilometre Array. And we just recently learned that the, the Square Kilometre Array project headquarters is going to be in the UK, which is very exciting for UK science, I think. But there are other telescopes like LOFAR, which are under the process of being constructed at the moment. There's the Long Wavelength Array in the, in the US, and the MWA in Australia are sort of similar style telescopes, which are not yet built. So LOFAR's leading the way in this way, and Europe's leading the way in this way.
2: Karen Masters from the University of Portsmouth, speaking to Andrew Ponson about LOFAR. Now, a new survey using the Herschel Space Observatory, debris hopes to characterise the asteroid dust found around other stars. Dr Bruce Sibthorpe
10: from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre. Well, the debris project is called a key program. One of the large programs that's being performed with the Herschel Space Telescope. It's a far infrared telescope, and what we're looking at is the debris or the resultant dust that uh, is created when asteroids and comets collide with each other around other stars. So similar to how the asteroid belt in our own solar system, these belts existed many systems, or I was about to say all systems, but this is one of the things we're trying to look into. We're trying to figure out how common these are. And what happens is when these asteroids hit each other, it produces lots of small bits of dust, which is relatively cold. And we can see this cold dust. And it also gets influenced by planets. So if there's a planet nearby, the dust can fall into what's called a resonant trapping, which means that that dust is clumpy and lies ahead of the planet or behind the planet due to gravitational balances. And we can see these uh, markers and therefore try and infer what's going on in the system, planets, other things like that. So that's that's the aim. These sort of sources have been seen before, um, but generally it's like a one-off source. You see one, you study it in a lot of detail. We're doing a really unbiased survey to try and get an idea of the evolution of these sources. And it's really a sort of holistic approach to the the field. How can you tell the difference between
2: bits of dust left over from asteroid collisions and, say, cool gas or dust that was there, regardless of the asteroids?
10: That's a good question. What happens is uh, any dust that originally exists, which is normally referred to as primordial, and that's uh, dust which was around when the star formed and created the planets, that dust is actually uh, destroyed on a very short time scale you get these sort of drag forces which act within the solar system, and they mean that the dust particles are drawn into the star. Alternatively, if they're quite small particles, they get blown out by radiation pressure, so the star's light literally pushes them straight out of the system. So anything that we do see there, and bear in mind these are generally older stars, they're sort of more like the Earth's age uh, rather than really young stars, so any dust we do see has to have been generated recently because it's on its way to being destroyed already. And what can we learn about a system just looking at this dust? We can learn about what the state of the system is now. For instance, we can map out using multiple wavelengths, so it's different bands of the from the same system, and we can use that to try and identify gaps in any disk that might exist. For instance, uh, we can work out what the temperature of the object we're seeing is. If we see a continuous temperature from at one temperature to another one then then that's one thing but if we see an object which looks like it has a p- spike at one temperature and then another s- discrete separate spike at another temperature that indicates there's two separate objects and in the middle there isn't very much now because the temperature of the dust goes down as the dust is at a higher radius from the star then you can tell roughly where it is and that can be typical of planets if a planet is orbiting in that position it can eat up all the dust and sort of suck it all in. So uh, we can try and infer things like that. In terms of understanding what it was like in the past, we can't really do much there. But what we can do using this survey is we're observing many different stars. So we can try and understand uh, how things have developed by looking at multiple systems all of different ages and compare how each one looks. If all the stars at one characteristic age have one feature and that feature doesn't exist in younger stars, you can possibly infer that's an evolutionary artefact.
2: And are you seeing heterogeneity in this debris?
10: Our survey is still only actually 80% complete at the moment. And because it's an unbiased survey, until we have everything, we can't be too sure. Uh, we are seeing trends that um, are looking quite interesting, but it's something which we're, we're looking into developing shortly. Once we've got all of the data, once we really understand our data, we should be able to pull these uh, different trends out.
2: You've already mentioned we have our own asteroid belt, which is almost certainly going through very similar, if not the same, processes. Is it possible that the theoretical... A hypothetical instead, alien life, looking at us from a far distance,
10: would also be looking at the debris from our own asteroid belt and could come to the same conclusions. Uh, Yeah, that's very likely. I mean, we don't quite reach the limit of our own uh, debris disk, but the solar system does have a debris disk. What we're actually looking at in most of these stars is actually a Kuiper belt analogue. And a Kuiper belt is a belt of asteroids, rocky particles, which are... Out at the very edge of our solar system, Pluto's effectively a Kuiper Belt object, and it's that belt which we're seeing in most other stars. We almost get down to a Kuiper Belt mass, and that is the dust mass you'd expect to see from our own Kuiper Belt in our survey, but we haven't got quite the sensitivity yet. There's a future project called the speaker Space Observatory, which is a Japanese-led project with ESA, European Space Agency, participation. The new instrument called SAFARI should be able to uh, get us to that point where we can start to see extrasolar debris disks, which are analogous to our own.
2: That was Bruce Sibthorpe from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre. And finally this month, we will return to Dr Lucy Green, who offered to take on your solar science questions. First, Paul Young asked why cool sunspots should lead to higher temperatures here on Earth.
6: A very good question. So sunspots are cooler features on the surface of the sun. They have a temperature typically about 2,000 Kelvin cooler than the surrounding surface. But it's not really as straightforward as that. We can't say, well, sunspots are cool, therefore the energy that the Earth receives is less. So sunspots are seen at the visible surface of the sun. But sitting above that is this very hot atmosphere. It gives off lots of ultraviolet radiation and x-rays and also ultimately forms this solar wind which is constantly blowing out from the sun. And the other aspect is that sunspots are magnetic features. And actually there's some really interesting research going on at the moment by Mike Lockwood who's at Reading University. And he's been looking at how a low number of sunspots, so a low magnetic field at the surface of the sun, ultimately decreases the magnetic field in the solar wind which could somehow have an impact on the jet stream, which then could, or does, changes in the jet stream, do then affect northern European temperatures. So, I mean, that's a bit of a kind of convoluted process, but really what I want to say is it's not as simple as saying the temperature of the sun equals this, therefore the temperature on the Earth equals that. We have to consider the sun's solar wind and what the mechanisms are of linking this solar wind up with the Earth.
2: We've heard earlier in the show about how sunspots twisting can actually lead to solar flares by sort of building up twists in the magnetic flux that then breaks and sends out material. Could that also be a link?
6: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, definitely the magnetic fields of the sun are responsible for storing energy in the atmosphere, which is released during solar flares and these mass ejections. But they are sporadic, short-term events. So a solar flare that can have effects on the Earth that maybe last a few hours or or maybe days. Um, Corona mass ejection's the same. So we're not really talking about long-term climate change here. We're talking about short-term effects.
2: We've also had a question from Ron Maxwell, who asks, how does the plasma that makes up the core of the sun eventually come to make up the solar wind?
6: So, yes, another interesting question, thinking about the structure of the sun. But the plasma that's in the core of the sun doesn't make it out to form the solar wind. The solar wind is coming from this very hot atmosphere that the sun has. The solar wind is an expansion of this hot atmosphere into the cold vacuum of the solar system. So it's the atmospheric gases and magnetic field that flows out to form the solar wind.
2: Uh, Thank you. We've had another one from Kyle Prowell, who says that if our solar system formed from the remnants of a supernova, then how come all the hydrogen seems to have coalesced in the middle for the sun?
6: Well, our current understanding of how the solar system formed is that everything formed from the same primordial material. So this supernova that exploded, it was a star that had processed hydrogen into helium and, and further on down the chain into heavier elements and then exploded and put these elements back in, into space. So everything in the solar system formed from the same stuff. But things evolve in the solar system. We, we are, well, the sun is, what, four and a half thousand million years old now. So we're, we're a fair bit down, down the evolutionary chain, as it, as it were. And the sun is turning hydrogen into helium. And you have a wind from the sun that we've already talked about blowing out into the solar system. And you have the planets forming. Those closest to the sun will be the hottest. So... the the lighter gases like the hydrogen and helium will be blown away from the planets closer to the sun because these gases are light, they're given energy from the sun so they're able to leave the planet's gravitational pull. And so when we look at the inner planets and we see that they don't have much hydrogen and we look further out to the gaseous planets and see that they do, that makes sense. It's not to say that they formed from different things, they just have evolved over time
2: and just lastly you might have to speculate with this one but ben has written in to ask if the sun itself has a smell
6: <laughs> that's such a good question um i want to say no but <laughs> you probably need to get a scientist who's uh, who understands how s- smell actually works i mean the sun is is giving off, or is made mostly of hydrogen um but actually this hydrogen is torn apart so you have a lot of protons and electrons and i want to say that no it doesn't have an odor but you should probably check with someone else
2: <laughs> that was lucy green from ucl's Mullard space science laboratory with some of your solar themed questions if you've got a question you would like to put to our guests email astronomy at com or tweet at naked scientists If you'd like to find out more about the Royal Astronomical Society, including details about the National Astronomy Meeting, visit ras.org.uk. And for more science podcasts, news, interviews and questions, just join us at thenakedscientists.com. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.